welcome to podcast number five, What the Fog with Joe and M. This podcast, we've decided to take a different route completely from our menopausal route. And we are interviewing a lovely doctor, Dr. Jeff Foster, about male health or men's health. He has actually published a book last October and we decided we would just do something really different and actually give the men a chance to learn about themselves and what they need to do to look after themselves. So, Joe, what um, did you think when I when I said let's interview a man about men's health? <laughs> well, I think it was a great idea. I think um, that in the same way that women's health is often not well uh, understood and talked about, uh, well, it, you know, men's health is even more of a, perhaps even more in the dark at, at, at the moment. And so I think he said in the interview that uh, there's something like 10 years behind women's health. So <laughs> in terms of, you know, research and understanding. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that just goes to show, doesn't it, that uh, there's a lot that needs to be sort of thought about, talked about, and uh, men need to understand what's going on in their bodies so that they can put things in place and live well into later life. Um, but yeah, I think I think what was what was interesting and one of the reasons that we wanted to have him on. Uh, was that we were beginning to understand some of the impacts of testosterone, you know, on um, on women, but also then um, as for both of us, well, I think at the same similar times, we were looking at the impact of testosterone and uh, and realizing that the impact on men uh, can be very similar to to the sort of symptoms yeah. that women have. And this podcast is called What the Fog. Uh, the Facebook group is called What the Fog. And whilst it doesn't include men in the Facebook group, we we felt there was a synergy with with what the fog with what we what we're about um and helping to helping men to understand that that actually hormones have an impact on their well-being and and health through you know through uh, midlife and beyond and so and one of those impacts is uh, we'll hear from dr jeff is around brain fog which is quite interesting so a lot of the sim symptoms are quite similar aren't they and and that's that's yeah. fascinating and and you know i didn't realize that men also have estrogen and um you know and i've been asked before when i've run you know trainings i have been asked um do men have a menopause <laughs> or you know what what mm. happens for men um, and this has really helped me to understand a bit more about that, you know, what is going on in men's bodies. And we think testosterone, sex drive, libido, but there's so much more to it than that. And uh, yeah, so I thought it was a really fascinating conversation. And I'm looking forward to our listeners listening and encouraging uh, their part, their male partners to also listen and to start yeah. to, you know, sort of take uh, an interest and, and get an understanding about their their sort of health and well-being into midlife midlife and beyond so yeah it was it was a good chat and dr jeff um dr foster i can't believe we didn't you know call him dr foster because dr foster went to gloucester <laughs> didn't he in a shower of rain, <laughs> shower of rain. <laughs> yeah uh, we missed that little <laughs> in our podcast um oh. when we were chatting to him but um yeah he's he's really actually he's all over the the place at the minute um so on saturday morning i just was you know had bbc breakfast on and was uh, was eating my breakfast, and all of a sudden he was on TV talking about the king's prostate. Well, he wasn't. He was talking what about. What did you prostate. do? <laughs> 
was King Charles had been in hospital having had a procedure uh, for an enlarged prostate. Uh, so they'd got Dr. Jeff on to come and talk about that. So he's, you know, he's doing really good stuff in terms of raising awareness and understanding. So we're very privileged and very, we were very yeah. privileged and very thrilled that he agreed to come on to our podcast and, uh, yeah, educate um, our listeners too. I know. It was exciting. And he is so lovely, isn't he? He's really He's lovely. So, and we did have a, a bit of a fun. giggle with him as well. Yeah. Had a bit of bit of juvenile laughing. I might have cut mm. that out, but there, there was a bit of a giggle. <laughs> no, we've got we, laughter is important, and these oh, conversations are important, aren't they? As we always say. I think by the end of the podcast, you hear him say, "Can he be our resident male expert?" And I think he said, mm. "Yes." I'm, I'm yes. Pretty, well, I'm taking it. <laughs> well, as a we'll yes. take that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there any other news in the news um, this week? Well, what I thought with news in the news was that as we are chatting about male health or men's health should I keep saying with a male doctor that we should keep the news in the news about male health so quite interestingly um there has been a um oh come on joe menopausal brain's gone um paper study thank you study study paper <laughs> One mm-hmm. of those. recently published by the british journal of sports uh, medicine which was a study on 60,000 swedish men and basically it said if these men have started off with good cardio fitness and increase it by 3% every year, this leads to a 35% decreased risk of being diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so the opposite side of that, if your cardio fitness declines, you increase your risk of being diagnosed with prostate cancer. Now, that was a that just says everything about exercise that we always talk about mm. exercise for menopause, exercise for young people, old people, everybody just exercise. I mean, it's yeah, and move. <laughs> the more, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the mm. more evidence comes through, it's just like just keep exercising. But this was from um, Kelly Casperson, MD. She's a doctor, urologist, and a u- uh, urology surgeon, I do believe, as well mm. in the States. And she's now gone on to my list, you know, last. Um, Last month, we spoke about our crushes. And (laughs) Dr. Lisa Moscone is one of mine, and you have Dr. Mary Claire. Mm. And actually, now I've got Kelly Casperson, MD. But the the funny thing, not the irony, but the funny thing is, Joe, they all support and like each other's posts. So it's actually wonderful that Mm. now we found a couple of them, we're getting more and more uh, information and more and more specialists to learn from. It's just absolutely Mm. brilliant. So Mm. our news in the news... Men, mm. once you've listened to Dr. Jeff Foster, is exercise. Mm. Cardiorespiratory exercise. Keep exercising. Exercise mm. is medicine, as they say. Um, anyway, right. that, that, that's me to, uh, to, uh, That's me done. How, how have mm. you been doing? Have you got any, any news generally? I've done the news in the news, but have you got any news generally? Or shall we just uh, chat about... Oh, Joe, before... Oh. oh, no, sorry. I'm going to interrupt. Oh, I'm very excited. So okay. last... <laughs> podcast people you'll have heard me going i want some more blue dots on my map for my podcast Mm. well last month we had 102 downloads and eight countries we had been downloaded in well i don't know if you heard me or you spread the word or you just felt sorry for me but today i looked we were 212 downloads wow so in the last month we've over doubled from when we started so an extra 110 (laughs) downloads and we've increased by six countries wow. we've gone from eight countries to 14 countries so i'm super positively super international positively oh, international. Well, thank you people so keep sharing keep sharing <laughs> yes and yes. now i'll come back to you my darling yes. How have you been? <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, uh, all good. Thank you. Uh, we have, yes, I, I'm trying to think what's happened. It's January is a funny month, isn't it, really? But yeah, we mm. are we are preparing for a wedding. My youngest daughter's getting married and um, also preparing to become grandparents. So, you know, life in, in the Ibbett household is, uh, is never dull and uh, it's great. <laughs> Lots of exciting things this year. As uh, as we do that, um, and yeah, I'm trying to think what else has happened, and obviously my brain fog prevents me from doing that. Uh, but no, it's been a good week, and just sort of more of the same. Keep keep plugging on, you know, making people menopausally aware. And <laughs> uh, um, I have to go back to our previous podcast. Did you traipse the pudding? Did you do the thing with oh, the pudding Christmas, that we spoke we did. about? Yeah, yes, we did. Yeah, we our did. Our podcast was just before Christmas oh, and we yes. spoke about your crazy tradition. Did you yes, upset we, anybody? No, because we were in this house that had a very big driveway. Of course so we you could, were. We could just keep it in the family. <laughs> we didn't get issued with any antisocial behaviour orders or, or anything like that. So, no arrests. No, no arrests. No, it was uh, <laughs> keeping it keeping it simple. So yeah, that was fun. But God, Christmas feels like so long ago now, doesn't it? That's crazy. Well, we're a bit late with this podcast. It's taken us a little bit of time to sort of negotiate our timing with uh, Jeff Foster, but um, mm. we're so glad we did. And and on that note, unless you have anything to add, Joe, no, we are I just think we go straight our... in. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So well, mm. well, uh, welcome. Sit back. So. <laughs> get yourself a cup of tea sit back and listen to the lovely dr jeff foster and we will see you soon bye bye hi jeff thank you so much for joining us today i really appreciate your time uh especially with me being particularly difficult being in australia and trying to fit in this time slot to chat so you are a gp and you specialize in men's health um you have recently uh, um published a book well october last year which i have taken great pleasure in listening to on my walks uh and you are the medical director and founder of h3 health and also a committee member of the British Society of Sexual Medicine, and you are involved in writing most recent national guidelines for testosterone deficiency in men. Now, that's quite a mouthful. So <laughs> could you start by uh, just letting us know? So you became obviously a GP. Were you always interested in going down the men's health specialist route or did this come along later and you decided to specialise later down the line? Um, no, I had no interest in it, really. But thanks for having me. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, uh, to be honest, it wasn't out of uh, design. It was just that when I started as a GP at my practice like 10 years ago, at that time, not now, obviously, but I was the younger male doctor at the practice. And uh, I go to the gym a lot and I was obsessed with sport and fitness. And so it kind of became a bit sort of self-selecting. So all the younger men would come and see me and say, what do I do with this or that? And initially, I thought it'd be really easy. We just go ask the specialist and they did, but there isn't one. And that became apparent mm. very quickly. So from a female perspective, it was like if you had gynecological issues, you go see a gynecologist. If you had breast issues, it was a breast surgeon. And then we did have, amazingly, in the NHS 10 years ago, there were actually menopause clinics in the NHS. But obviously that's Wow, really? Um, uh, so, and, and you could go see a menopause, but there, there was nothing for guys. And it was all kind of presumed or assumed that you'd just be incorporated in whatever specialty that was. 
<clears throat> the problem is it just doesn't work like that. And urologists are very good at their bit and endocrinologists are very good at their bit and cardio, but nobody looked at the guy as a whole. So it kind of grew from that. And then I sat in with some clinics for urologists and some endocrinologists and then managed to get on to the BSSM group and started getting involved more. And it kind of just flurried and or flourished even. And um, yeah, became self-fulfilling. And then, yeah, there aren't many of us in the UK that actually have a specialist interest in male health, but it's a really rewarding thing to do. Mm. You know, it's not just the UK. Um, I don't think there are many of you <laughs> all over the world, because I think that's also a, a, an issue when I chat to my son and when we've spoken about men's health and he goes, well, I just don't know where to go. I just can't find anyone or nobody can really direct me. And then there is that Obviously, it well, could go down the private route, but then is it sort of a private doctor or is it a private specialist who's not really a specialist, yeah. but is a gym freak and yeah. wants to do all off the record sort of testosterone? And it's it's a really difficult journey, I think, for the moment, at, at the moment for men. Mm. You, you might have oh, seen oh. that this month, the government in the UK has decided to appoint a male ambassador for men. Um, I did. Not, I saw I it on your Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. The fact that they're only willing to offer people that it only requires one or two days a month's work suggests that really they haven't really engaged on this topic. Um, but I think there was quite a similar failing when it came to having a menopause czar mm. for women, and that didn't go particularly well either. So mm. it feels like a, a political gesture, but not necessarily something that will make a big difference to male health. Mm. No, and I noticed, I think you said something like it, the hours of what you were expected wouldn't even pay for a locum to replace oh. you in your GP practice. It's wow. ridiculous. Yeah. But yeah, it's crazy. Anyway. Yes. Great. So um, tell us a bit about what's happening in men's health and how things are perhaps evolving. Are things happening that, that are going to start to break the taboo around this a little bit in your sort of in your experience? Yeah, I think. Probably one of the important things is to try and determine what is important in men's health, because you could argue that for hundreds, if not thousands of years, men have had the monopoly on medicine and health in general, and women have taken a backseat in leading this sort of stuff. So you would think that men should be better at looking after their mm. health, mm. but they're terrible. Mm. And uh, they do less well in almost all aspects of health demographics. Uh, you know, they die sooner. We have higher uh, levels of mental health suicide. We have higher levels of cardiovascular disease, of higher levels of cancer. There are other conditions that women have higher levels of, for example, connective tissue autoimmune disease or depression and anxiety, but they tend to be conditions that don't kill you. They're obviously terrible, mm. but they don't mm. end people's lives in the same way. So when we try and look at men's health, we kind of split it into those areas that are most important to try and tackle. We tend to say those are in the mental health group because suicide is still greatest in men aged 40 to 45. Uh, we try and tackle the cardiovascular risk because men are still most likely to die from a heart attack than anything else. And then the up and coming things that have had long term evidence, but only really starting to break the forefront, things like testosterone deficiency and erectile dysfunction, which have been around forever, but mm. haven't ever really been talked about very well. Mm. Mm. Um, no, Probably. because when erectile dysfunction came out, everybody could just go and get Viagra. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, the solution was found fairly, yeah, it seems fairly quickly. Yeah, it? you're right. And I guess the problem is that if you think about, what, half the population 
are going to get, as in half, 50% of men get erectile dysfunction at some point in their life. Mm. It's one of the rarest presentations at general practice. There's a bit of a disparity in this, yeah. so we're not getting it right. Yeah. I think one of the things that struck me in your book, the case studies, was just how sad it is that most of the well, I haven't listened to the whole book yet, but, you know, a lot of the case studies, the men don't take on the advice that, you know, or the, the, the options, do they? And, and then and you, there's just this sort of lack of responsibility sometimes, it feels like, in terms of managing their health, even if they have got to the doctor. And that badge of honour that comes with, I haven't seen a doctor for 20 years, yeah. um, is, is, is interesting because... I think we associate going to the doctor with, you know, firefighting things and rather than the preventative kind of like, what can I do to ensure I, I stay healthy? It's a, there's, a, there's a mountain to climb with all of that, isn't there, in terms of, you know. Yeah, men. I mean, there's lots of reasons and there's some actually some recent papers about why men don't go to the doctor. But even if you think from a sort of uh, cultural and societal level, mm. women from an early age are more trained to go see their doctor for things because it's part of your general life and well-being if you think about it if you go to, to contraception you'll go speak to your doctor in your teens if you get pregnant you'll go speak to your doctor you'll have midwife stuff you'll have the vaccinations that go with it you'll get breast screening cervical screening and i'm not suggesting that it's great for me and it's all really good because it's not mm. but it's just that you're more used to going to the doctor and women are still primarily the people that take their children to the doctor when there's an issue more so than guys. Mm. So it just becomes the rarity for men to go and engage. And if you then couple that with the stigma that says, well, if you're not really a bloke, if your testosterone's low, we've well, got erectile problems or something. So guys just really don't want to go see someone. Mm. Yeah, and that's really interesting because that could sort of leads on to what it, um, well, for, thinking about it, as you say, testosterone deficiency for a man is pure, and their ego and their whole mm. manliness—that's what they think is would be gone. So how, you know, they don't want to actually sort of go and find out they have got low testosterone. But mm. there are so many other symptoms, aren't there, that low testosterone can present as. I think the average turnaround time for a guy to see me with low testosterone is about three to five years from the onset of symptoms. Wow. So that's a long time to feel awful for, mm. really. So, you know, classic symptoms are really, really comparable to menopause, um, at least milder forms of menopause. It's not the extreme end of it. But, but you think about things like um, just feeling like you're more tired than you used to be. You might not have the same energy as you did a few years ago. You might go to the gym, train just the same way, but you just cannot make gains anymore. Your body changes shape, again, just like menopause, mm -hmm. when you feel like you've gone through that thing of losing muscle mass and your body's getting fatter, but you haven't changed your diet. Uh, you find you get grumpy, mm -hmm. irritable, just no loss of um, uh, enthusiasm. Your mojo's gone. Everything becomes a bit more bland. You often find you do get a loss of libido or maybe not loss, but a drop in. You're just not as interested. And then you might also get some erectile dysfunction. And these are only the softer signs. But the big thing, I guess, is that for men, if you spoke to a guy in his 40s and said, do you have any of those symptoms? Most folks are going to go, yeah, I've got a couple of those because mm. I'm a bloke in my 40s and I work really hard and I've got young kids. So I don't really get to go to the gym as much as I used to. Well, I, I do, but, you know, you know talking about the gym, I do. Mm. <laughs> you get to the gym and you may not be able to eat as well, have as much time to yourself. You've been married for 10, 15 years. You may not have sex as much as you used to. And then all these sort of things mm. pushed into an eye that it's the cultural narrative that this is normal for a guy. Mm. And, and don't get me wrong, for 75% of men, this is. This is just the way they are. But, of course, that means a quarter of all men have got a hormonal problem that you could do something about. So why aren't we? Yeah. 
I was going to say, so um, this li- I've got so many questions, and I, you know some of them, but I mean, I'm just conversations I've had, I've had with my. What is just having a 35 year old son who said exactly what yeah. you just said? He's going. I'm not making the same gains as the other guys at the gym. This tiredness, and it was, you know, he's a FIFO worker. He goes away and works 12 hour shifts and comes back. Then he's with his. He's got two young daughters. He's married. He's trying to do, you know, he's trying to balance everything. And he's, oh, is, is this what's going to happen to me now? I'm 35, and I was like, well, I don't know, but let's let's find out this morning what he can do. So, yeah. um, testosterone um, levels and free testosterone and total testosterone. Could you quickly explain the differences of those and what are the levels? Because I think in Australia, the levels might that they consider might be lower than UK. Uh, yeah, Europe. I don't know what Australian level would be. You'd probably have to check that likely. In the UK, um, effectively, we would class anything sort of 15 to 13 animals per litre is your ideal range. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything less than 12 with symptoms should be considered low testosterone and anything between 12 and 15 would be sort of a maybe picture if you had other medical conditions so for example um, there was a big study released last year in the lancet uh, which called the t40m study and this looked at giving type 2 diabetic men uh, who had symptoms with low testosterone testosterone treatment and it was a game changer you could get something like 15% of these patients off diabetic treatments, Um, same percentage of those that are impaired glucose went back to normal. So this is, and this is um, lifestyle adjusted. So you can't argue it's just they Mm. got fitter because they had testosterone. Um, So it's a game changing drug. That's only looking at the total testosterone though. And the important thing is in the NHS, of course, those reference ranges are not the same. So the reference ranges I'm going by, by the BSSM, the British Social Medicine Guidance, and um, that is effectively the most up-to-date process. Um, some of the Royal Endocrinology guidance is very similar to that now. I think they just copied ours, probably. <laughs> you thing. did the work. Yeah. We'll take it. Um, yeah, allegedly. <laughs> Um, so, uh, but that's fine. Um, but realistically, it's just that the NHS levels don't catch up and the NHS levels tend to be anywhere between sort of six and eight nanomoles per litre before your cluster is low. Now, there are lots of cynical reasons why you might say that that low level is so low. Is it because you have to treat less people? Is it because it saves the NHS money, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I think, honestly, the answer is just that it hasn't been updated for so long. And a bit like menopause was a few mm. years ago, where it was just considered, well, you just put up with it. It's a fine, yeah. normal thing. There is still an enormous amount of um, mentality towards male health that, well, if you have low testosterone, that's not a thing. You know, mm. we all have testosterone as we get older, so suck it up. And that's how they kind of approach it. Mm. Um, so that's total testosterone. And that's just the amount you produce in your blood each day. And that flows around. But even in a really fit and healthy adult male with normal levels, your usable testosterone is only something like, two to three percent is a tiny amount and all the rest of it is bound to these carrier proteins in particular sex hormone binding globulin which we get in women as well and it binds yeah. with sex hormone and it's supposed to release it when you need it the problem is of course that sometimes if that level of binding protein is too high the amount of available protein gets squeezed and squeezed so testosterone gets squeezed and squeezed so actually the amount you can use gets less and that's your free testosterone so if your total testosterone is low I don't really care what your free testosterone is because we know it's low, it doesn't matter. But it's Mm. useful to know in patients who maybe have symptoms of low testosterone and they appear to have a normal testosterone. So then you want to know what's the free. Is it that you can't access the testosterone you've got? And of course, in those patients, you treat it slightly differently. We've done sort of um, total um, testosterone. What would be free? I think, do you do it in picomoles or something? uh, Anything less. 
anything less than 0.225 nanomoles. 0.225 nanomoles. That's yes, just really interesting to know. When I had blood tests for testosterone, my testosterone levels, they said they did. The GP said to me, "Then you have to have the right person reading the uh, mm. the results because of this binding yeah. protein, exactly. um, and, and how uh, because the results don't won't necessarily reveal." The results if you know it depends yeah. on so that's really helpful i hadn't understood why that was but um and i think that's it's just worth people knowing isn't it is that it's not necessarily as straightforward as it as it seems it, it's even harder in men because your testosterone levels fluctuate through the day so you right. have to the timing to do your test and you have to know about comorbid factors so most of low testosterone in guys is caused by age but certainly if you're 35, for example, I'd be very concerned there was something else that was causing it. And the way we always tell patients is that your balls are very sensitive, metaphorically. I mean, <laughs> uh, a lot of external other things impact on it. So if you yeah. had thyroid problems, if you're a bit anemic, if you had kidney problems, all these sort of things. I mean, even medications you take, stuff like asthma inhalers, blood pressure tablets, antidepressants, they all affect your um, mm -hmm. testosterone. So sometimes it's about getting that bigger picture and knowing well why is it low rather than just saying here's some testosterone because if you fix the cause you might not need testosterone we can avoid that. um yeah and that's the other thing where i've got this big i'm just uh, ranting on about this i don't like it when people just buy a finger prick test and they bring it and they go look my testosterone is low it doesn't mean anything mm. it's out of context so tests have their place but you have to do it in the context of understanding what the test was looking at at what time and why yeah. I mean, would you recommend men to have um, like the old MOT that used to happen in the UK? Does it still have men over 30 when you go and see your doctor every year and have a full full sort of a health check and, and a blood test? Would you sort of recommend or ask or, or for a bloke to ask their doctor, say, look, could you start when you're doing my cholesterol and my general liver functions and everything else you're going to do in a full blood test? Can you start keeping an eye on their own testosterone levels? Would that would would that be helpful to them or is that really not necessary because lifestyle can change those levels? Well, I guess the problem is, um, so the health checks start from 40 in the UK. Right. Why do you not know predisposing factors? And they're very good because they're one of the few things that the NHS offers in terms of preventative health. You know, we're not very proactive in the NHS anymore, certainly for men. Um, so it's one of the few things you can do. The difficulty with asking for testosterone is what do you do with the information? If mm. your GP doesn't know much about it and you don't know much about it, there's a real unconscious incompetence risk that you come in and you get falsely reassured that everything is fine, whereas in fact you feel dreadful. So mm. I don't think there's any issues in having the test done and at least a venous blood sample done via an NHS GP is going to be better than nothing, but you've still got to look at it in context and it might still mean that you have to take that with you when you see a specialist and have a chat if you just don't feel right. So it comes back to men understanding the symptoms of low testosterone and and kind of being somewhat cognizant of that and then being able to present those to their GP perhaps and the GP doing a, a range of, you know, sort of tests or, or looking at a range of factors to see what's going on for the person. I wouldn't expect a GP, especially in the current stress of the NHS, to know how to manage you know, in medical terms, primary male hypogonadism. I wouldn't expect them to suddenly be able to do all of that because it's a specialist area, just as you have menopause specialists. You know, I, I don't know, I know the basics of HRT, but I wouldn't feel confident titrating different levels up of estrogen compared with mm. testosterone levels of women, etc. And that's why you have a specialist. So mm. I think by all means, ask the question, but understand that it's still a specialist area. 
I, it was, I was listening to a podcast today, actually, with a, a urologist from the States. I said, what's a Rachel Rubin? I wrote it down because it's really interesting. Because um, um, And she um, she is, yeah, urologist and sexual medicine specialist for males and females in the States. And she said something which made me, I, I don't know if it's just the States, but she said there are guidelines to support giving a man a trial of six months on testosterone just to see how he feels. Now, I don't know. Is that a thing in the UK or is that a very American thing? It's a very American thing. Oh, right. The thing to remember about um, testosterone is that it's not a panacea for all male health issues. So I guess you could argue comparatively, would you give every woman HRT, Mm. whether she needs it or not? And you'd probably say, well, the patient's choice is on this. With testosterone, if you get a guy whose testosterone level is normal, so it's mm-hmm. in the mid 20s it's really good and he's 45 and he, and he feels okay well even if he doesn't feel okay and he feels like he's got low testosterone but his free testosterone is good got loads of stuff flying around he's got massive testicles everything's fine um and you <laughs> no, don't no, no testicular atrophy going on no, there no. <laughs> oh, wait till you give him a treatment no, I'm joking. Um, so you give him testosterone and um he won't feel any better and mm. that's the key. And there's all this thing about, do you just give men who just don't feel right a bit more treatment? Well, actually, the evidence is it doesn't seem to make a lot of difference. Because if you give someone testosterone, you can't do, it's called testosterone replacement, not top up. You can't add to their testosterone. All, all that happens is you shut down your own production and you replace it with the external treatment, which means you have to sh- reduce your own, add the extra on top, and then add more to try and make yourself feel better. And if you're doing that, you're effectively you know just taking anabolic steroids you might as well go to the back of the gym meet a guy called steve and get some drugs from a van well that's another question i've got to ask you i don't know i don't know steve personally it wasn't me i wasn't there <laughs> no but it does worry me the this 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 thing about going to the gym and the boys you know taking i mean supplements there's supplements for an aging or uh, a guy getting old like magnesium and zinc and our vitamins and there's these supplements that people going to the gym seem to think are helping them um and that i think ranges from these things i uh, that I, I i think i put it in my questions to you um tong cat alley and mm-hmm. fedogia agrestis so you've got sort of things that they're saying uh, supplements that will help their testosterone levels but um Oh, hang on. My menopausal brain's coming. I've lost my train of thought. So which supplements should they take? <laughs> if it's a question about which supplements. Yeah. It's a tri- I, think I, mean, it, I think it is. Are there? Oh, sorry. That, sorry. What I was trying to say was, could you, are these are these supplements that are, contain all these sort of herbs worth it? Does it increase testosterone? But also... What are the natural or what are the good what's the good stuff that we should take? Like menopausal women, we know we should have magnesium, we should look at our vitamin D. Which ones should they naturally take? Sorry. And then which ones should they not be buying and taking thinking it's going to help? Obviously, the the supplement industry is a one of the largest multi-billion pound industries across the world. So it's very, very easy to get sucked into some of the um advertising propaganda that goes with it but in reality there are only really a couple of supplements that make any difference um so from a safest from sort of safest roots side of things uh things like creatine monohydrate are long-standing highly evidence-based very good and you can take them 
your whole life. They don't have any evidence for problems, except people with established kidney disease. They're completely good. There's even some data around them having cognitive benefits. Um, so good for older people. There's also evidence around caffeine and caffeine is very good for you and coffee and all sort of thing. That's fine. When you start to look at the harder pre-hormones and hormone sort of things, it falls into two categories, stuff that does absolutely nothing. So things like fenugreek, tribulus, that there's no evidence. They don't do anything. There's no studies in humans that they make any difference at all. They're in a lot of the testosterone boosters, but they don't do uh, I hate doing that. Mm. But they don't do anything. Might as well just right. not bother. Uh, when it comes to a couple of the others, Tongat Ali, however, does appear to have some effects on testosterone levels. Ah. But then the question is, how safe is that? And the answer is, we just don't know. So right. got to, the way you've got to position this is that if you have a, a fit and healthy 25-year-old guy, he's going to the gym lots, and his normal hormone production is great, then if you're taking something that is improving or increasing that level – that is effectively an unnatural, unphysiological process. You're taking a drug. Now, whether it's classed as a herbal supplement or whether it's, as I said, from a guy at the back of the gym, the only real difference is the, um, the degree of potency of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So Tonga Tally appears to be safe. It appears to have some degree of improvement. It seems to act like a drug we use Clomid, so it tends to make your testicles produce more testosterone. But really, we just don't know what it does long term. And it's probably mm -hmm. fine. But but if you're going to do that, then I don't I don't I don't really see the the, the why you'd want to go down that route. The, the pretense that it's somehow um, herbal and is therefore safer doesn't mm. really apply. If you're going to do that, you could just take a low dose anabolic steroid. The same principle still occurs. So I think generally most of them do absolutely nothing. And I would say, you know, going back, if I could speak to my twenty year old self, I'd say don't waste the money on stuff mm. at the health food shops. They don't really make a big difference. Mm. There's lots of evidence around things like um, zinc and selenium improving sperm quality in men. So if you're thinking about having kids, maybe that's useful to do. But most of the time, as bland as it sounds, it's just having a really good diet. And that's all that really matters. Yeah. I think the, the most popular one recently is the Mediterranean Plus, which is considered to be one of the best. You know, So Mediterranean, yeah. when they say plus, they just mean including berries and nuts which is okay. not exciting well that's what we say to every menopausal woman yeah. look at the mediterranean diet rainbow you know just and the nuts and the berries and the seeds and the legumes and the yeah. but that doesn't protein. make you a millionaire in holland and barrett does it or other no. No. Shot. <laughs> no um so it's that and that, i think the that's, lifestyle is really important for it yeah those those sort of lifestyle everything else you do is just icing on the cake and yeah. it's tiny tiny percentages for the vast majority of the population who are not professional athletes it will make no difference whatsoever no and i think that's what struck me in your book was the was the focus on that before any sort of replacement testosterone replacement was the that actually men can create more testosterone in their testes and and they can they can increase that whereas for women with estrogen you you know as it declines as you age it's different more difficult to you, you can't um and so 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 because uh, we, we we're sort of getting near the end of our time this has gone so fast this conversation but it's i think we've got you for a few more minutes have we got okay. 10 minutes okay. yes okay okay great so what would you what would in terms of lifestyle then what would your sort of top you know your top sort of tips be for for guys as they get into midlife and uh preparing for a later life and good health um okay so not just from a testosterone perspective but from Generally, a general yeah most of it is the bland stuff that we hear 
day after day that you become desensitized to because we hear it day to day. So diet is one of the biggest things you can do. Mm. Um, sleep quality. So we're looking at six to eight hours a night, ideally not broken sleep uh, and ideally not sleeping in in the morning, which is bad for you uh, and not going to bed too late to disrupt your circadian rhythms. We know that between sort of 1030 and midnight is when you produce your growth hormone at higher levels. And after midnight, you're just not going to get as much of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, it's nice to have growth hormone. It keeps all your muscles working and the rest of you functioning normally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sleep quality is something that you see so many people claiming to be sleep experts and you can buy an app for it on your phone. And God say, what a waste of money. <laughs> but most of the time, you just need to get a decent sleep hygiene. Mm. And yeah. some people will have bad sleep and you can't fight your genetics. If you've just got somebody who's got bad sleep, you'll never be a, an eight hours. And you might turn over to your partner and think, God, I hate him. <laughs> he gets eight hours sleep and he's a, always asleep. It doesn't matter. And, you know, my wife constantly pokes me and says, are you snoring? <laughs> or something. Um, but that's just how we are. And you can't always alter that. But if you do things in your life to mitigate or at least minimize those effects, you can maximize what you can get from your natural sleep cycles. And by that, I'm talking things like you need to be exercising three to four times a week as a guy, mm. at, at least. And it doesn't matter what the exercise is. I, I don't mind. It doesn't need to be weights. It doesn't need to be long distance. It just needs to be intense enough to get a metabolic stimulus. And that's the important thing mm. because it's like to improve your testosterone production. It's going to keep you younger and it'll help your sleep. So it all cycles around. Mm. Um, the other thing that's really important is being sexually active. So um, with or without partner, doesn't really matter. Uh, obviously the preferences with someone, but you know, you take what you can get. Needs must, so, needs must. Um, exactly. And it takes you back to my uh, teen dating scene. So largely without partner. So um, effectively what we're saying is for men, there's a really good study done that looked at prostate health in men a couple of years ago. And it showed that men that are sexually active or ejaculate around 21 times a month uh, have a significant reduction in prostate cancer risk as they get older. Gosh, so really? Reduction. So it's 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 way more than <laughs> you're, just you're just sniggering. I was looking at the health benefits. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been doing certificates for patients. Uh, anything that they can take back home, really, to give. People. I was going to say, I'm not letting Paul <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it really does make a difference. Yeah, and there are very few. You know, prostate is one of those diseases that we all worry about as guys as we get older, and everyone says how. Prostate is very sensitive to lifestyle factors like smoking and being overweight, etc. Et but sexual activity is a really important one. The other thing that's useful about sexual activity is it prevents erectile dysfunction. Your penis is just like any other muscle in a sense that you can't have erectile dysfunction for five years, take a Viagra and expect it all to work properly. Mm. So being regularly active helps things function. Um, and of course, being sexually active also improves things like blood pressure and serotonin release and mental health. Mm. And on that side, mental health, it's it's really hard. And we're not making massive indents on that side of things. Mm. Um, the suicide rates haven't really changed for decades in men. What I'd always say is you've got to try and obtain control as much as possible. And one of the biggest triggers we find in men is that they lose their autonomy. And once they lose that autonomy, either through pressures of work or pressures of home, they feel particularly trapped. And despite changes in social demographics uh, most men still see themselves as the primary breadwinner most men still mm. see themselves as the ones that are largely responsible for keeping things functioning at home but they do feel trapped when they can't express that or they can't fulfill those needs and there's no one they can speak to mm. because you're not a bloke if you start crying about how sad work is mm. 
So that's really tricky. So how you maintain autonomy uh, is really hard. And it's very easy to come across particularly patronising and just go, well, just reduce your stress. But that just comes across as, well, what an arse. How do I do that? Mm. So I don't always have all the answers, but I think certainly it's something we try to get guys to do. And even if it just means you're taking some time to yourself each day to say, this is my time, my phone goes off and I don't speak to anyone, that's very helpful. Mm. So to me, mine is the gym time. My gym, my headphones go on, phone goes off and I can combine that time to myself and listening to sort of like 80s classics while I train. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Love an 80s classic. Um, the final thing I'd suggest as well, or final two things, sorry, is body weight because we do know that body weight is just particularly bad for guys. Um, over 15% body fat starts to decrease your testosterone levels. Most guys sit at about 20, 21. Oh, but obviously as a population, we're also getting larger, which means that increases your cancer and heart disease risk. And when we're desperately trying to get men to get healthier, um, body fat is unfortunately mm. um, a big trigger for that. The last thing then I'd suggest is, like you said, get a health check. And it doesn't have to be an NHS one. I don't care if you want to spend 500 quid or five grand on it. But it's really weird that you would spend a couple hundred pounds a year on servicing your car. But the expectation is that your body will just keep going. Yeah. Mm. And of course, it doesn't work like that. And as we get to our 40s, it's good to think, actually, yeah, I should should do something for this. A friend of mine, he asked, I said I'm interviewing you, and he, his question was, um, how many men over 40 that are prescribed antidepressants do you think are or maybe actually suffering low testosterone? Do you have oh, any? I'll tell you what, that has got, that's got research trial written all over, okay. hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Just got, I mean, I have to say, I, I've seen, so we've got about a 1,000 patients in our private clinic in H3, and of those, I would say a third of those have had mental health issues of some form. Not all have been on antidepressants. Several have. Uh, several of them have been able to come off antidepressants after starting testosterone. But even if it's not gone as far as I have depression, it might be just that I'm just not happy. Mm. And I just feel low. And that diagnosis is sort of low mood rather than anything medicalized. So I bet it's massive. Mm. But um, yeah, it'd be great to get some more data on that, really. It would, because nice guidelines, perimenopausal woman presents themselves in the perimenopause. First line of defence is HRT before an SSRI. Mm. And um, we were just wondering if it was the equivalent in, in, in men. Um, hang on, I was going to ask a question as well. Oh, the, the benefit, or, or, well, the risks of low testosterone. I mean, it's this, we've spoken about an increased risk in cardiovascular disease type 2 diabetes as well what about the sarcopenia and osteoporosis side that happens with us ladies getting older and losing muscle mass and losing bone density is that the same um i'm presuming the aging process in men it's still the same they will lose they'll have sarcopenia and osteoporosis but yeah. does low testosterone exacerbate those those two things it's, it's exactly the same as in women in fact, we finally got the local guidance of changed their DEXA scan forms now, so we can actually refer men for low testosterone for their DEXA. Course, so if you think about um, in uh, women, you need lots of estrogen, a little bit of testosterone, and it's just the opposite in men. So in men, you naturally convert a small amount of the testosterone you've got into estrogen as part of the byproducts it metabolizes. So it's that estrogen that keeps your bones dense, just like same in women. It's the estrogen that keeps your brain level-headed, and it also contributes to sex drive. So you do find sometimes we take we see patients who maybe don't take uh, testosterone in a medically advised way 
and they then buy estrogen blockers to try and counteract the fact they're converting too much to estrogen. Um, and these guys have really nasty side effects. So they can get some really impressive fractures because, of course, they've got no estrogen. So their bones become these all the women's bones with these giant hulking blokes walking around on them. Right. Um, it doesn't do well. So, yeah, definitely associated. This is just my question, actually, because obviously we're going through the menopause and we're all talking about body identical and our estrogen progesterone being made from yams and we take it transdermally. Um, is testosterone, how is testosterone created? I mean, I, in Australia, we have got the first um, licensed female testosterone, mm. Androfem, which has been absolutely brilliant because I've been able to go and get it from my, my GP here. Um, but yeah, is, is testosterone body identical? We have Androfort you can get. So we actually import the same drugs so the male equivalent is androfort which is the same as androfem for women and we don't use it in a lot of patients because it's very expensive because you've got to get it from australia um but the equivalent ones are tested gel which again a lot of women use we just use a lot more of it um and the injectable forms that's primarily the difference i think in the sense that obviously women use a very small amount of tested gel which you might rub on mm. for men you have a few more choices in, in the delivery process of how you get the drug uh, so we use injectables, either short acting every couple of days or every week or two, every two, three weeks. And there's a long acting one you can use at 12 weeks. Um, we don't have patches yet, although they're talking about bringing those through. But there is going to be a tablet based version of testosterone that's coming through this year. I've yet to see how safe it'll be, but it's certainly lots and lots of changes uh, coming through. So basically, we refer to them as body identical, clearly not bio identical. Mm, we don't do no, that. we don't do that. Uh, but body identical. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same, same molecular so, yeah. structure as what we know that's happening it's in the our same bodies. stuff yeah. you, you give to women it's mm. just the volume that's different mm. and i always do hark on about that actually men and women are not that different it's just the ratios mm. yes mm. yeah i because i was only on learning all about menopause i realized you know that we have we produce much more testosterone and mm. then men had to have estrogen as well it was just this whole complete <laughs> <laughs> complete yeah. you know levels are completely different that make us who we are because yeah absolutely oh i'm so, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a science nerd jeff so i love i love all this yeah. <laughs> um how, how long have we got oh we've got three minutes i'm going to ask you this question because i um want an answer because i think it's mm, i'm a bit suspicious selective androgen receptor modulators what are those and do they work are they dangerous receptor androgen receptor of psalms Oh, psalms. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, fine, I'm familiar. So they're like precursor hormones. Sorry, it's just we don't use them. So they're not used medically, but they're supplements you can I buy. I know. Are they dangerous? Um, well, they're, they're, they're like precursors to, to, te to steroids, effectively. So they will uh, act as precursors for testosterone production. So they're safer ways or allegedly safer ways of taking anabolic steroids. It's a safe um, way of taking it. Right. There's not, but the principle is still the same. You're taking a, you know, I'm sure there will be um, pharmacists or other people who have read upon this far more than I do. But effectively, you're using a drug that's a precursor to taking testosterone to increase your testosterone levels. Right. Um, and doing it in a level that's not physiological because you're increasing the total amount that doesn't need to be increased. If you genuinely need total testosterone, you should be taking testosterone. You know, we wouldn't give you selective estrogen modulating drugs for menopause we just give you hrt just give us estrogen yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. there's no point to it but it's a very good way of getting around the fact you're selling something that is effectively very near to a steroid mm. oh and can a man take too much testosterone <laughs> oh, yeah. but with men yeah. being men 
and probably not going to the doctors and just wanting to maybe build up muscle. Can What can damage can they do to themselves by taking too much if they can't see a doctor? For blokes, it's more like a sort of Gaussian curve of health. So if you have too little, all this bad stuff happens. And if you have too much, bad stuff happens. So right. generally, uh, from a too high level, you start to thicken your blood because testosterone has a polycythemic effect which stimulates your body to make more blood and it's great everyone likes more blood but you don't want too much blood because too much blood makes it sticky and sticky blood tends to clot mm -hmm. and clots are bad um the other thing is that um too much testosterone can then start to have a cardiovascular effect so we know that testosterone improves cardiovascular risk in men that have low testosterone so it gets it better if you go too far the other way you can put too much strain on the heart and then it goes too far the other way as well so it's getting the balance just right there are also psychological issues that occur with very high levels of testosterone and some men do describe this that I've, I've never personally seen steroid rage you know i think that must be a sort of a a street sort of thing more so than we ever describe. But even in men that have had higher levels just from alterations in doses, they do say they start to become more snappy and irritable. And you could see how that could potentially progress in very high levels in men. Brilliant. It's worth getting it right, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why I have a job. I mean, otherwise it would just be, you know, just handing it out of the car park. Yeah, men, we, well, yes, we just don't want people taking it into their own hands in that sense. No. And it does worry me that I do feel that, that that that's a lot of thing that young men do. They do take it into yeah. their own hands, and it and and for them to understand the the dangers, mm. you know. You know, not to digress because I realise time is of the essence. But uh, if you look at um, the pressures for younger men on how they should be expected to look now, it's changed so radically in the last five ten years mm. that a lot of younger guys are now using anabolic steroids in a way that we never. I never had as a teenager. There just wasn't that pressure. If you look at Hollywood stars, for example, the really good example we looked at in one of the recent articles was Hugh Jackman. So obviously this guy is is absolutely stacked. And then each time he does a one of his movie, he's getting bigger. This is a guy in his mid-50s. Now if I wasn't training and I started from scratch, it would take years to reach that point. And yet they come across on camera and say, you know, I ate chicken breasts and trained twice a day for six months and it was all there. <laughs> None of this is perceived to be entirely without some assistance. Now, I'm not hoping we go down the copy, uh, the law route of suggesting that <laughs> film stars take anabolic steroids. But these provide really unrealistic expectations of what your average gym goer will be able to achieve. And mm. if you then combine that with social media pressures where everyone's stacked, you can see how a lot of blokes are thinking, well, I need to take something because I'm not as big as everyone else out there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I think I think I've just been sort of look. I feel now with the men being menopause uh, aware, I've got so much information to help my daughter and my daughter-in-law's health. And this has been great because I've got a son and I'd like to help mm. help his health as well as he gets older. So this has mm. been absolutely fantastic. And I do appreciate we're two minutes over now, Jeff. You've got to go. Um, thank you so much. We haven't had. Is that, we um, haven't had. Oh. <laughs> We haven't had <laughs> Jeff's golden nuggets. Oh, I was supposed to, <laughs> I was supposed to email you. I was supposed to email you and say, Jeff. It's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> we asked for three golden nuggets at the end of our thing. And, of course, I sent email to Joe and said, well, this is what I've sent, Jeff. And she went, no, oh, you haven't asked him about his nuggets. And I was, oh, God, I'm, I've just been very <laughs> juvenile. I just couldn't stop silly. laughing. Now, now I've been married for quite a while. I've never really asked you about that anymore. So your, I appreciate your pearls of wisdom. Three... 
Oh, yeah, that's what I meant as well. Um, so, yeah, sure. A couple of things that you would like men to, to take away from listening to this or to do or, or something. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, one would be the, the, the most important thing I'd suggest for any bloke is don't accept normal. Don't accept normal for age. Don't accept the fact that you're whatever age you are, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and think that's my lot yeah. because it doesn't have to be. And you've got one go at this and don't leave it accepting that you need to feel crap. It may not be testosterone. You know, let's hope if you come to my clinic, it is. Um, but it could be someone else. Mm. But don't just sit on it because time goes very quickly. Mm. Um, secondly, I think spend more time being selfish we don't spend enough time as guys. And by selfish, I don't mean spending time playing Xbox. I mean time to yourself to look after yourself in a way that maybe you feel you should do or deserve to do, but don't feel you have the time to do. Mm. So having that time, as I said before, to exercise or to eat better or to take time to yourself to meditate or train or whatever, I don't care. Just to be more selfish is really important. And the last thing is, at some point over the age of 40, get a health check done. Just you know, I, I even and a lot of guys, especially in the UK, will say, well, well, I shouldn't have to pay for this. I've got the NHS. It's available. And that is a very good point. But unfortunately, the NHS doesn't always offer everything that we would like it to. And if you're willing to spend 600 quid in your car insurance and spend a couple of quid in a service just once every couple of years, get a decent health check and make sure that everything's OK. And if it is brilliant, you can email me and say I wasted my money. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But if it catches something you could have prevented and gives you a better quality of life as a result, then it paid off. Superb. Thank you so much. Thank you for um, giving us your time in between uh, on a very busy day. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, it's you. been great. Yes, it. thank you so much, Jeff. Really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll be able to chat to you again at some point. You can be our sure. man's health expert. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Brilliant. Thank you so Take much. Care. Take care. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening. All references can be found in the show notes. Please remember to like, follow, share, subscribe and rate us. Any or all of which would be greatly appreciated. Remember to email us your menopausal moments, your funny stories and anything you'd like us to talk about or questions. The email is watchthefogcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on the following socials. Instagram, Joe is underscore what the fog m is the modern menopause joe has a private facebook group called what the fog joe's website is courage-coaching.co.uk m's website is themodernmenopause.co.uk you can find us both on linkedin joe ibbert and emma meads mm -hmm.